everyone and welcome back to Panic Mode, the podcast for gamers and game designers with your hosts who have openly cried during all the games we're about to talk about, Aiden and Shelby. Well, okay, <laughs> openly, like, can I, can I be openly crying but on the inside? Sure, Like, Aiden. if I admit that I have been crying on the inside the whole time, is that still openly crying? Just constantly? I mean, yeah, sure. Um, I have certainly openly wept at all of these games at multiple points in these yeah, games. Yeah, but you also so. openly wept when you couldn't open the peanut butter this morning, so... <laughs> That's true. Cry a lot. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about story in games, the number one thing that makes me cry. So we spent a lot of time uh, talking about narrative in games and designing yeah. narrative structures because I think that's a more interesting topic in terms of how that relates to video games. And we are like ultimately a game design focused podcast. But I think something we forgot to talk about in that time was story in games, is yeah. writing a good story for a game. Yeah, so when we talked about narrative in the past, it was more about how how story blends with mechanics and how all these different things with, you know, the art, the the gameplay, right. the, the soundtrack, how that all comes together to create a cohesive experience. So like Aiden said today, it's just going to be a focus solely on the story. Um, so on the characters, on how those characters are realized, on the themes, on how they come together. Um, and and can, this episode was kind of inspired by uh, a story you told me about. You were producing a game for a team. Mm-hmm. And you have a big background in story design. Yeah. And they kind of came to you and they're like, how do we fix our story? And you asked a simple question like, okay, what's the theme of your game? Yeah. And they were like, what's the theme? <laughs> our game has to have a theme? And they were like just so befuddled by this question. And now we're like, yeah. well, how do, I guess people, this, this isn't actually like knowledge that a lot of people come into the industry with. Yeah, it was, um, specifically they were trying to come up with an ending. They did, they were unsure how to end the game. Right. And you know, an ending is, you know, a fairly important part of, of the process. You got to yes. leave people with something to, to hold on to. And, and they didn't have a cohesive theme that they were kind of following yet. And I think that's where they were really struggling to, to kind of find where their game was supposed to go because they, well, they didn't know where it was coming from. <laughs> and, um, and I think the funny thing about story is that a lot of people, it's, it's something that a lot of people want to do. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks they're good at it. <laughs> But it is really, really, really hard to do, and not all yeah. people can do it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of intricacies and and tougher bits to to think about and things to consider right. that can often kind of get overlooked or um, kind of caught up in, like, the romanticism of it, if that makes right, sense. Right. It's like everybody wants to, to create this wonderful experience because they've experienced something, like an amazing story, and it's like, oh, well, I can totally do that, and it's going to be it's gonna be so easy. I'm just going to pour all my passion into this. It's going to be great. But as, like, with all aspects of game design, there's so much thought and, and work that has to go into it and planning, um, and it's not just a matter of sitting down and writing a script and saying, huzzah, I have a game. <laughs> there, there are many moving parts, and so we're going to yeah. hopefully talk, get into some of that. And I think today. it's kind of an extension of the idea that a lot of people really like to paint in broad strokes in game design, but mm-hmm. do not like to fill in those strokes, as it were. Yeah. That, um, like, for instance, it's like maybe you're designing a, a, a sci fi game of some way. You're like, okay, what if there's this race? of uh, this, this alien race that it's like they're half robot and half biological and they're completely telepathic. Mm-hmm. It's, okay, it's like, what are they called? And it's like, well, that's a hard question. <laughs> but it's very fun to have the big, sexy idea mm-hmm. but then to start to fill in any details because the second like you want to implement an idea like that, that means, okay, what do they look like? How are mm-hmm. we going to character model them? What do they yeah. look like in combat? How do we animate them? What's yeah. their lore? What are they going to do over the course of the series? Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's a lot of really hard questions that require really long and intricate answers beyond just the fact of you have a cool idea for a thing. Yeah. And, you know, with this episode, I, I want everyone who, who wants to write for video games and, and who loves to write for video games to, I believe that everyone can do it. Um, and 
I think hopefully this episode will give like just some some ideas and some like starting places for things to think about and consider while you're on that journey. Um, so hopefully this is helpful for all the right. the wonderful writers out there. All right. So um, you're 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 a fresh game developer. You're making a you're making a big game. You're trying to think of a story for mm-hmm. what, what's your starting place? I think a great place to start is to think about how you want your players to feel while they're playing the game and how you want your players to feel after they finished playing the game. Um, I think this is important because not only is it a huge rallying point for multiple design teams, so if, for example, like if you want your game to be kind of full of like mystery and kind of like um, a little bit of scary stuff, but not like horror, but like it's kind of unnerving, maybe like Bloodborne, for example. Okay, that's, um, that's straight up horror. I don't know what the hell with that. I don't know. There's whatever. Pick your, pick your poison. Um, but it probably won't work to paste the story of something like Stardew Valley, which is a lighthearted farming simulator. Um, <laughs> with like dating dating aspects you know onto the, the world of bloodborne like that's right. just not gonna that's gonna have two different feelings unless that's what you want in which case you know a dating bloodborne simulator could be actually awesome someone please make that um <laughs> no, you're doing the thing you're doing the thing where it's like here's my crazy idea someone else do it someone and then else that's do just it. like another 500 hours of you're work right you just put you're on right someone. oh my goodness i need to take my own advice um but anyway the reason you want to have this, this feeling in mind is because it's going to help you formulate a theme for your game and a theme is something that every game has um, whether, in terms whether of it was put there consciously yeah, or not. Exactly, yeah, whether it was a conscious like, decision we or not. Were, we were been watching the Netflix series Love, Death, and Robots. Yeah. And a lot of the time we've been coming away with the episodes, I was thinking it's like, I don't think the writers knew what their theme was. Yeah. And that completely screwed up how the episode came across. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you, when you think of a theme, it's not to say like, oh, like you must have a theme. It's just, it's not something that needs to be like specifically articulated in your game, but it's the idea that all other ideas should rally around to create a cohesive experience. And obviously different... And we're going to give some examples Different later. players might come up with their own interpretretions oh, of yeah, what of your course, theme was at. Of course, of course. If, yeah. if you... It's important for you as the author of the game or the author of the story of the game to be able to answer what you want the theme to be about. Yes, absolutely. And we're going to have three kind of case studies where we're going to talk about what the theme is and why it works. Um, so stay tuned for that. It's coming up. All right, so next question. <laughs> How do you achieve, like, these, these goals of having a very strong theme and having very strong characters without disrupting game development yeah so like we said at the beginning it's it's almost never it might maybe for some people it is and you know that's really lucky it's almost no never as simple as sitting down and just writing a full script and I, being like done I, I just feel like i swear to god like not like naughty dog like the uncharted and mm-hmm. last of us developers they oh, just yeah. have like a 300 page screenplay and that's just their game that's that's just their design document. yeah that's it but they're like the only developer that gets to do that yeah because i think um, there's there's so much that happens, you know, in the editing process, obviously, and things that need to change based on more narrative design aspects. So things like, oh, actually, you know, we can't do that lighting. So that's going to be weird for this one scene that you had in mind. Right. Or like, you know, we can't build that set piece for you. Or this, this mechanic isn't going to work. And so that's going to be weird because the theme no longer lines up with what you had in mind. So there's going to be like things that you need to but change. sometimes it goes the other way too, where it's like, that, oh, yeah, it's like yeah. oh, hello, writer person. <laughs> we have this big epic sequence where we shoot an airplane out of the sky and you mm. as the player like sky dive into the airplane while it's crashing and like this, this, yeah. this insane set piece and stuff and it's like write that into the plot and you're like yeah. well, what about my bloodborne dating <laughs> <Yeah>. simulator <laughs> exactly. yeah isn't that, isn't that always the and case like, what about my bloodborne dating simulator and typically in our experiences i think most of the time the narrative team is brought in in a more holistic role where it's yes. like you help come up with these scenarios yeah. as opposed to just get blindsided by them but yeah, it's worth knowing that lucky. it can go both ways yes yeah a lot of the time we, we've heard lots of stories where a game has been like fully completed in terms of like levels right and then they call the writers in for the last like few months and they're like, Hey, can you like layer a story on top of this? Like I'm thinking about the um 
the Titanfall 1 story campaign thing. Mm. That was when it was all set in multiplayer. So oh, you would play okay. the campaign and there was like a campaign to there was like a campaign quote unquote, but it was mm. mostly just played out in little vlogs that, that went off at the side mm. of this player screen mm. while a multiplayer match was going on. Yeah. So each match was just a multiplayer match ultimately. And there was a bit of story that played on in the background in the time and there was maybe yeah. like a bit of a different intro to it. But point being like there was almost no story that needed to be built. Yeah. Like, yeah. the levels themselves were not designed for story in mind. So I could very much see they built this big epic multiplayer game and said, okay, we need to have a bit of a story here to provide some context for the players. Mm-hmm. So they brought in a narrative team at the last minute and said, okay, like, okay, how can we build a story around just a few multiplayer matches? Yeah. And I with a story, like, I'm... Obviously, I'm very passionate about story, but I don't think there is, you know, a, a, be- a right or, like, a wrong way to do it. I think there's just different ways of doing it. And I think that you can have a wonderful experience no matter how you craft it or no matter what you feel is important. Um, these are, like I said, like these are just some just some things to consider. Like I, I feel like there's so many things with writing that we haven't discovered yet and, and, and ways to tell stories that we haven't even discovered yet. So I don't want few people to feel like, like I'm putting a box around like writing and saying like, oh, like these are like the things you need to consider because I feel like you know, it's all about being creative and like trying new things and, and different ways of conceptualizing characters and, and story, storytelling as like a whole. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just don't want people to feel like, oh, I, I like need to consider these things. They're just there for like guidelines or maybe if you're but, like stuck brainstorming or something, like think of this, this for this some is, help. This is really for people who have more of a game design background and less of a creative writing background. Yeah. Because yeah. this is, I think the approach we're going to be taking with this episode is more along the lines of these are writing techniques you could apply to any medium. Yeah. But in the context of video games, it's very important to look at these skills too, but our previous episodes of narrative have been more focused on the relationship between writing and the medium. And this is more just about writing itself. Definitely. So Aiden, let's, let's get into the writing. What are the, we've got three things we're going to be focusing on. So So what what are those? Yeah. These these are kind (laughs) of like our takeaways. We're going to kind of do them backwards before we go into the case studies. Cause we're Mm going to do takeaways and case studies instead of, instead of the usual case studies and takeaways, just because it's going to help us frame the case studies a bit. So the first thing I really want to see in a good game story is compelling characters. Mm -hmm. And this does not mean like you have some deep and dark and twisted protagonist who's haunted by their their dead (laughs) wife or something because you know what we've seen enough Liam Neeson movies it's true (laughs) this could just mean something like Handsome Jack totally it's it's very compelling like they're just they're very strange they're very different but their actions make sense that there's something the audience finds compelling about them to watch and I know that I know that word is going to start to sound very like cliched at some point. It's just say, like, oh, yeah. the characters are compelling. I said, okay, well, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, we'll get that would be a whole we'll, other episode, honestly. No kidding, we're just characters. doing characters, but um, <laughs> yeah. we'll get more into that in uh, the case studies. Yes. The next thing I want to look at is having a strong and focused theme, and you already talked about yeah. this a little bit. Um, so this is just mainly for for the examples we're going to say where we'll talk about what the theme or what we think the theme or themes of that game is, and then how they. Right. Uh, how the story feeds into those themes constantly. And that, that works really well for the games that we've kind of ha- highlighted here. Yeah. And uh, another th- and the final big thing I want to point out is, have, is having a very strong ending, and specifically a surprising but honest ending. Yeah. It was an ending that the player did not necessarily see coming or did mm-hmm. not see all aspects of it coming, mm-hmm. but it makes sense. It's not just some... Yeah bizarre M. Night Shyamalan twist for the sake of being a twist. That is, yes. that, that is, that is, that is cheating. That is why I'm not, <laughs> that is why M. Night Shyamalan movies are almost never good because <laughs> yeah. he just goes for the surprising, but not for the honest. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's important too, to like define what we mean by surprising. Cause like you said, right. It's not like, Oh, I'm like shocked that that happened. Like that's not right. what we're going for. It's not like a, we're pulling a 180 on the player. It's, it's something that 
it's, it's like humanly surprising. Like, oh, I didn't, I didn't think that person was going to do that. But you know what? That makes a lot of sense. Right. And, and you'll, it'll make more sense in the examples too that I think we've outlined. Okay. So perfect. So we've got compelling characters, a strong focused theme, and a surprising but honest ending. Do you want to, let's uh, go into some case studies? <laughs> right. So I think uh, one of the most standout examples of a very strong storytelling and recent memory was God of War in 2018. Oh, yeah. And yes. I think anyone who's played that game will agree that that game just had a very, very, very tight story. Yes. Oh, this story was so good, and I was not expecting it at all. All right, so say it with me. What's the theme of God of War? Parenthood. (laughs) So parenthood and maybe to a a slightly lesser extent, a family and familial relationships. Yeah, family bonds. Um, Definitely parenthood. And keep in mind, too, if if you had a different experience with God of War, that's absolutely okay. (laughs) That is valid. But look at, like, every main character in the game. Yeah. Even like the two blacksmith minor characters who work on your axe, like they're mm-hmm. brothers and they have they have their own little arc about coming back together as brothers, learning how to collaborate again. Mm-hmm. Or even uh, uh, Baldur's younger brothers, who you kind of confront in the later part of the game, that yeah. they have this big issue going on with mm-hmm. them related to their their family and yep. they're kind of inferior. Yeah, they have like this inferiority <laughs> complex compared to like Thor and Baldur and Odin and them. That yes. They kind of feel like they're these lesser gods that get screwed yeah. around, and that happens in families all the time. Definitely. And. I think this is going to kind of branch into the next point, but the characters in God of War are also a very strong point. That there's, yes. there's really four main characters between Kratos, Atreus, Freya, and Baldur, mm-hmm. and they all have very simple but very personal arcs. Yes, yeah, so right here I want to note that the goal of the game is to take Kratos' wife's ashes, Atreus' mother's ashes, and spread them on the top of a mountain. That is the game yeah. goal, okay? That is a... First of all, a beautiful game goal. Oh my goodness. You can see how, like, that could be, like, an idea someone had very early on in the process. Like, what if that's the point of the game? And someone's like, how do we make a game out of that? Yeah. And I think I want to take this next point to say, like, you can stretch a very simple goal into a very long thing. Mm -hmm. Because, like, like, there's the point in the story where it's like, okay, you got to get to this alternate dimension to get to the highest peak in all the realms to give her the ashes, to get get rid of the ashes as as per her request. And... They said, okay, well, in order to do that, you need to get Momir's other eye. Well, where's Momir's other eye? It's in that big giant snake thing. (laughs) So you can put all these obstacles in the way to make that happen. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can you can turn these into big epic set pieces because spreading your your lost mother's ashes is not inherently like a very difficult task. It's not yes. like saving the universe or stopping a bad guy. Yeah. Like you could just go do that outside if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. But they're trying to honor her wishes, and they have, you have to like kind of talk about why that's important. But you can also yeah. stretch that into really epic set pieces, despite it just being a very simple goal. Now I'm going to put a caveat on that because I've. I remember I was playing Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, and eventually the, the story becomes about finding this ancient sarcophagus that's thought to contain the body of an ancient dead vampire of sorts mm-hmm. that ostensibly contains great power in it. Mm-hmm. And that that plot point line gets introduced very early on, and it gets stretched out way too far. <laughs> that like you'll like get, like you'll do a mission. It's like this is where the sarcophagus is. I'm like great, let's go get it. And it's like oh, it got taken again. I'm like oh my god, my princess is another castle. <laughs> And I yeah. think that's why it's a meme. It's just it's just it's artificially extending the story. Yes. So I think yeah. God of War doesn't fall prey to that because there's a lot of other things happening in the story, mm-hmm. especially with the characters. Yes. But yeah. it's just something to note that you can have a very personal, intimate story with a very simple goal, but still stretch that into something very big. Yeah. So the reason the characters are wonderful. So this is mainly Kratos and the relationship he has with his son Atreus, um, which is something you know everybody has parents I'm, right. I mean you were born and whether 
you know, those parents are, you know, with you now, or you kind of have, like, you've adopted some parents, or, you know, um, choose your own family kind of thing. I think we all have experienced different sort of relationships um, in our lives, and that's something that is extremely human and extremely personal, and it's something that we can all understand, and I think that's what makes these characters so compelling, especially Freya. Freya is the same, so she, while Kratos is a father, Freya is a mother who has a son as well, and so all of a sudden, Kratos and Freya become these intertwined characters of how they parent and not only how they parent but how they show love for their children and right. what their children are becoming that also that's also a question it's kind of it's a fear of like what happens if my kid is a terrible person and i think that's a question that that gets grappled with constantly both with freya whose child turned out to be terrible and with kratos who is worried that his son is in the process of becoming a terrible person. And more specifically, because of him. And because yes, of who exactly. He is. Yes, and because of who Kratos is, right? And so these these two sides of the same kind of coin are happening constantly, and it's this constant question that keeps coming up, and it's it's beautifully done. Like it's it's hard to like not get emotional when you think about it. And it's just, and this kind of ties back to the theme is that this is just the characters embodying the theme of the yes, game in different yeah, exactly. ways. Of talking about yeah. parenthood is how they're all responding to the. Yeah. Parents. So so that idea of parenthood is what's anchoring basically everything right Right. and and family to like a to more a more of an umbrella term and so basically everything the characters do is linked back to that theme and it's it's awesome it's such an it's an experience that game is an experience if you have not played it before we talk about how the ending is surprising but honest i just kind of kind of wanted to contrast (laughs) this the original god of war trilogy Mm -hmm. which i I think i'm going to make this case a lot but a game does not have to have saving the world or just destroying yeah. the world's stakes in order to feel epic. And I think this exemplifies that more than anything else. Yeah. That the original God of War trilogy had lots and lots of characters, and it was this really big sweeping narrative about getting revenge on Olympus and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But it ultimately it was a lot less focused mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. definitely went for more of like a grandiose Greek type of epic story yes. to it. Yeah. And I just wanted to point out that like that that served its own purpose mm-hmm. and did a good job. And I think the good the original God of War trilogy did have a good story to it at the end of the day. But this one was just much more tight, which is the word yeah. I'm gonna use a lot here. That it was only <laughs> <Tight>. there was <laughs> it was tight, yo. It was tight. <laughs> that there was four main characters. There was really only four main characters, yeah. and it was a yeah. father and a son, and a mother and a son. Yeah, and that was how the themes were embodied. Right. Let's talk about the ending. Ah, uh, yeah. So an honest but surprising ending right. for God uh, of War. Spoilers, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So there's gonna be some spoilers here. Um. So I guess part of the surprise comes. This is closer, I think, what, mid to end game, where you find out that Freya, her son, is Balder, the, yeah. the man that you've been fighting, basically, so for these the are, whole game. These are two characters who existed fairly separately from each yes. other for a while, but all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense that they're that's who they are. Yeah. And the real surprise comes from witnessing the love that Freya has for her son, because like we said before, he is, in fact, a, not a very nice person. No. He's become um, a complete lunatic because yeah. of his nature of not being yes. able to feel pain. Yeah, which Freya bestowed upon him. Yeah. And so there's all these layers to their relationship. And there's a lot of, I think, guilt. There's a lot of anger. Um, there's a lot of love on the part of Freya. Um, but and just like, I'm yeah. sure Kratos is looking at that himself and he's thinking, okay, like she created her son. She turned her son into this person mm-hmm. by trying to protect him. Exactly. And Kratos is like, well, that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> that's exactly I'm what I'm doing. Trying to, I'm trying to keep him safe as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, it's it's surprising not in the sense like, oh, I'm, I'm shocked that a parent could love their child, but it's surprising in the way that I think one, like what you just said, like the way that it's it mirrors Kratos' situation right. and his fears, but also in the sense that, that someone can love someone that much, you know? It's just, 
it's a, it's just, it's beautiful. It's very sad. It's heartbreaking at the same time. And I think uh, the thing I'm going to throw to the most surprising but honest is that mural you see at the end, which has shown their whole adventure, but yeah. also some of the future, mm-hmm. which also suggests that there's going to be a more adversarial relationship between Atreus and Kratos yeah. in the future, which I think is kind of inevitable. But mm-hmm. I think, let's just, I'm going to, I'm going to spitball some numbers here and say that 100% of people <laughs> have at one point had a complicated relationship with their parents. <laughs> So I think even despite Kratos' best intentions and having become a very good father to Atreus by the end, all mm. things considered, mm. it's going to be for naught at the end. Of it. There's going to be rough patches in the future no matter what. And I think yeah. that's what's honest. That like they, they accomplished their goal. He's kind of fulfilled his fark, his, his fark, <laughs> his, his arc of being becoming a better father figure to Atreus. Mm. And Atreus has, done a, has uh, completed his arc of becoming a better son. Mm-hmm. That doesn't change anything. Like, this is, they're still going to be complicated yeah. in the future. And I think that's what's honest but surprising about it. Yeah. And I think part of maybe what Freya's story was talking about is that even though there's going to be complications, maybe not to the, quite the extent of Freya and Balder, but that you can still love that person right. through those rough times. Um, and I don't know what exactly Kratos okay, and Atreus' rough, rough times. Rough times for Balder yeah, and Freya, but, though, Jesus but, Christ. But, you know, the sense that there's still love there, even in the even in quite literally the worst of times. Um, so I don't know what that's going to look like for Kratos and Atreus, but that's sort of like a sad silver mm-hmm. lining. Um, it's also interesting that if... I guess it's like a surprise for me that comes at the beginning of the game is if you know Kratos as a character from the original trilogy and then seeing him as this fully developed person with feelings and, and, you know, struggles. And then that is like a surprise that just sort of kind of lingers throughout because he is, he's a wonderful character. He's trying his best to be a father. Um, well, which is something we've never seen from him before. <laughs> I think it's a direction that surprised a lot of people who are yeah. fans of the series. But yeah. I think it is kind of a good point that, like, we kind of have this idea of the cliched action hero. Yes. just, like, yeah. really wrapped up in his own masculinity. Mm-hmm. And that Kratos, in order to evolve, and as he became older and had a family, had to let, let go of that a bit. And how the game has kind of always, like, played with that duality of him, of having this really, really dark past. Mm-hmm. And all this violence that has been carried with him throughout his life and how this is affecting his future. Yeah. I mean, the, the in the first ten minutes of the game, Kratos is, like, walking back to his house, and he's talking to his wife, who is, like, passed on. He's just sort of, like, not talking to her directly, but but pretending, like, if she were there, right. this is what he would say to her. And he, he says, you know, I can't do this without you. And that's, like, I think that's something that I will remember forever, because you can, like, you can feel his pain in that line, and it's just so, it's just... Yeah, it's a beautiful story. And I was listening to an interview with some of the game's writers, and they were talking about one line in particular where Atreus screws up his, like, you think they were trying to hunt the boar, and he misses his shot. And Kratos says, don't be sorry, be better. Yeah. And it was just kind of, that line took a lot of work because they needed to straddle the line between this is, he's still very much a hard ass as a father, Mm -hmm. but he's still trying to be a mentor to his son. And they try to get that kind of relationship done throughout the game. Yeah. But anyway, enough gushing about God of War. Let's do the next case study. (laughs) All right. Oh, God. How did this get on the list? (laughs) Ori and the Blind Forest. Oh, it's one of my favorite games. I know. I love Ori and the Blind Forest. So the themes of this game are very much centered around loss and grief and most importantly, rebirth. But this this one almost plays out more like a fable than like a literal... A little bit, yeah. A, a, like a very literal story about parenthood like out of war yes so this is more like there's a lot of symbolism going on here. yeah the characters themselves don't actually speak it's mostly narrated through um through sign the little ball of light that follows you around um and the the basically like the the life tree itself is sort of giving a little bit of narration at the beginning um and kind of throughout um but what's special about the characters is that there's only a handful of them there's ori and then ori's 
um, Mama Naru, <laughs> and then um, there's Goom Goom Goombo. Shelby, if you don't know this, no one knows it. I know, I know. And then there's the uh, basically the villain who is named Kuro. Um, and each of these characters, they experience loss, they experience grief, and they experience rebirth, but they do it in entirely different ways. And not necessarily always rebirth, but just getting over the grief. Yes, exactly. And yeah, that's what I mean by, by I should have clarified that. So by rebirth, it's, um, it's basically, yeah, overcoming their grief, moving on, basically. Yeah, and just kind of understanding um, it's like, who am I yeah. after this grief? Yes, what, what, do exactly. I, what do I look like now? Yeah, exactly. And they do this in very different ways, but it's all under the same umbrella of they have experienced something terrible. Yeah, and, and it's how they move on, and it's 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 beautiful. It's yeah. oh, it's very and, well crafted. Just like and like this may seem like bizarre and like a story about animals and yeah, they're all animals and all this yeah. weirdness to it, and it's not quite as like one for one as God of War was yeah. to maybe I my relationship with my parents or anything mm-hmm. like that. But it's still centered around very, very human themes. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think so, that's another big thing to point out. Here. Yeah. So this is this happens in like the first ten minutes of the game. So it's not really a spoiler. But if you haven't played it, please, please go play it. Um, <laughs> please, please play this game. How many times do you think you've endorsed someone to play or in the blind? <laughs> so forest? good, so many. Um, but Ori is basically adopted by Naru, and they have a wonderful life together. You know, she they're very much mother, and Ori is genderless. I, be, I believe the developer said so. You can implant whoever kind of whatever you want right. so for me Ori is a girl um we're so... talking about characters now is this what we're doing <laughs> yeah. so, so what makes Ori compelling as a character so Ori and her mother have a wonderful relationship they are like picking like peaches off trees and they're like building things together and they like snuggle and it's like beautiful and then the forest dies because the tree that Ori is from, he can't find Ori, and so it kind of panics. And I think the point of writing it in that way is to sell the player on the loss. Yes, That when Naru exactly. does die, they have to feel that yeah. pain along with Ori. So Naru dies, and Ori, who is this adorable little cross between, like, like a white fox and, like, a rabbit and, like, anyway, adorable, is just, like, so sad. <laughs> and because it's an animal, you feel that sadness um, because, you know, animals are wonderful and don't deserve any harm whatsoever to come to them. And so it breaks your heart because you th- start thinking about, what if I lost somebody that I loved that much? And then you just, and then and then the game starts. Right. And so this relationship has been established. It takes your heart and, like, rips it in half and tells you, okay, like... <laughs> go go save the forest and if, and you do you feel compelled to um because there's that hope that maybe i can save maybe i can save my mom maybe she's right. still there's still hope and like that um, was a long sequence because it the, was the real game yes. does not start the opening for a is while, like 10 minutes but yeah. that's an important way to to get the yeah. the, the uh, player invested into, into yeah the kind oh of yeah story i was in tell. i was in it to win it man <laughs> <laughs> um and this is seen, so this loss that Ori experiences, she sort of has to overcome throughout, right? Um, and that happens in a number of ways, which I won't get into the specifics here, but I'll talk now about the honest but surprising ending, which also has a lot to do with characters, is that Kuro, who is the villain, uh, she is kind of an owl crossed with a raven, I think because she's she's got these beautiful black feathers, um, and she is basically trying to attack Ori throughout right. throughout the whole game. And I guess, like, spoiler alert, <laughs> what you eventually learn is that Kuro's babies were actually killed in the bursts of light that were looking for Ori. And so all of a sudden, this this villain is actually just a grieving mother. <laughs> and you're like, oh my goodness. Because and you get hit with this about halfway through the game. Until now, it could have just been uh, a 
player would not be faulted for assuming that, oh, this is just some kind of hungry animal that's attacking yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. it makes total sense in the context of the game that this, this is a creature that's going through the same arc that Ori is. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So Kuro, the same way that Ori is, they are both trying to find ways to bring back their lost right. loved ones, right? They're doing the same thing, just in different ways. And they're, they're, they're going through their grief in different ways. And so eventually, what, what is surprising is not only finding out that Kuro has also experienced this loss, but at the end, she actually sees Naru, Naru comes back to life, it's for anyone who's wondering, and it's beautiful. Um, and Ori and Naru are reunited, and Kuro sees this, and she sees this mother back with her baby and realizes, well, oh my goodness, and then she that's actually, me. that's me. And she actually sacrifices herself to bring the light back. Right. And that's how the game, that's that how the game is. It wasn't the protagonist who saved the day, but it yes, was the villain. Yes, it was the villain. And actually what ends up happening is Kuro has, an, has a baby left. She has an egg that was unhatched. And so so it survived like that, right. that light burst. And so Ori and Naru actually end up fostering this baby owl. Um, and so again, like that cycle of, of rebirth comes back because that owl is born into like a loving family and who they were, I'm sure will always look upon Kuro fondly for, you know, sacrifice. Anyway, it's a, I'm getting emotional right now just thinking about it. Well, on that note, I think we've extensively covered Ori in the Blind Forest for the 67th time. Yes. And we can move on to our final uh, case study, which right. is uh, Life is Strange. Oh, another beautiful case. Speci- sorry. <laughs> sorry. Specifically the first season and yes. not the prequel or the second season. Yeah. We're, we're talking about the, the main, the main, I guess... Season one with Max and Chloe, the really yes. famous one. Yeah. <laughs> so the themes here that uh, we're kind of going off of, and I think there are many for this game, um, but the ones that we felt were most strong were themes of friendship, of growing up, and of responsibility. Right. And we see these in, in different spaces throughout. Um, so the characters, and I guess we'll, we'll talk about how the characters link back to the theme in this case. I think that'll be the easiest way to go about it. There are many different characters in this game. Unlike God of War and Ori in the Blind Forest, there are, there are many people that you get to interact like with. At least four. <laughs> at least four. <laughs> um, so for example, there is Alyssa, who is a very minor character, um, but she goes to the, the high school that Max goes to, and she's constantly getting hit by things. <laughs> so she's getting splashed by cars, she's a, getting hit in the head with footballs. Is, is that a character development? Is this, is this what, Oh, absolutely. Is this, is this what absolutely. <laughs> but, but what's sweet about Alyssa is that you, you really care about her by the end. Um, and for those who don't know, the main mechanic of Life is Strange is that Max has the power to reverse time. And so whenever Max sees something bad happen to Alyssa, she just reverses time and either asks her to step to the left or, hey, Alyssa, like, let's like go back here for a second so you like don't get hit by a football. <laughs> and Alyssa functions as like a world builder, basically. Right. I think she helps establish not only the setting of high school, but she also establishes Max's like beautiful heart <laughs> in right. wanting to do good. You know what I mean? In a very small way, Max is trying to do something really special for somebody else. And even it's, it's very minor, right? Like not getting hit in the head with a football, like that probably won't traumatize you forever. Maybe like, I don't know, the rest of your high school days. Um, well, you were traumatized anyway. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, whatever. <laughs> but I think this is, this is a small thing that shows that Max is really trying her best to put some good back in the world with the powers that she has. Um, and, and Alyssa is a minor character, keep in mind too, right? There's also, I think Olivia, her name's Olivia, right? The popular... No, Victoria, Olivia. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. So Victoria is kind of the popular girl at the high school. She's not very nice, um, but you do learn over the course of the game that there's actually a lot more going on with her uh, than meets the eye. You kind of feel bad for her a little bit. You understand her. And I think there was this moment, um, I think you're in the you're in the gym at night in the third episode, and yeah. you kind of end up in her locker. Like, I guess that's totally like kind of creepy now to think about it out <laughs> yeah. loud, but 
uh, Max goes and she finds some selfies that Victoria took. And yeah. it was just very, it was very intimate and much more goofier than you usually see Victoria, that she kind mm-hmm. of has this weird kind of closeted yeah. creepy side to yeah. it. And it's one interesting to see that for her, and that makes mm-hmm. complete sense for her character, that she's very tied up in maintaining this popular yes. girl image. But at the same time, how Max reacts to that is also very telling of Max, that she's just like, okay, like, these are actually pretty good, these are actually pretty good photos, yeah. let's not, like, conflate the artist with the art, and yeah. it's just kind of, like, appreciative of it, and says, like, mm-hmm. oh, I kind of understand this more now, yeah. as opposed to being like, oh, man, I'm gonna tweet, I'm gonna tweet this, <laughs> exactly. and get her real yeah. And it's just little moments like that that go yeah. a long way to giving the, the characters of the world a lot more texture. Yeah, and again, these factor back into those themes, especially of growing up and responsibility, because, so with Alyssa, it was Max wanting, wanting to be responsible for somebody else and taking that onto her right. shoulders and trying to do good and then with growing up it's realizing that victoria has there's a lot more to people than we think but right and there's like, there's layers you can flip that to victoria's perspective and that she's probably not had as many friends or many yeah. close friends as you yeah. want and she's struggling to grow up and be herself exactly and express herself normally. yeah because max is very much herself and i think themes of friendship and growing up and responsibility are just kind of be kind of prevalent in anyone's life, but mm-hmm. especially when you're young and going through yes. puberty and things like that. Yeah. And I think that's what Life is Strange does For a sure. really great job of showing. Yeah, and then of course, you know, we've got Chloe and Max, who are the, the primary characters you play as Max. Max is entirely lovable. She always tries to do the right thing. Um, she's a she's a wonderful character. She's funny, she's charismatic, she's caring, she she has, you know, heartbreak, she, she goes through all these things. Um, she cares so much about Chloe. Chloe cares so much about her. Um, she's a little bit more of like a wild card. Also has a lot of growing up to do. Yeah, because um, they are kind of, they are definitely meant to be used as foils to each other. Where yes. Max is kind of yeah. the more stable one and Chloe is the more one that has to grow up a bit more. But mm-hmm. they have to be responsible for each other in different ways. Yeah, and I think they kind of find that they, they need each other to sort of be the people that they want to be. Right. Um, which now, is wonderful. Let's quickly talk about the ending, or in <laughs> yeah. this case, the, the ending is because this is a choice-based game. Yes, so. so I think this ending is very interesting in terms of honest but surprising. So at the end of the day, uh, there's there's a couple of main plot lines being pushed forward in Life is Strange, but they're mm-hmm. all building towards this big storm that's yeah. approaching Arcadia Bay, the game setting. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the game, you either have to choose to let Chloe die, as she did in the, originally before Max changed that in the first episode. Yeah, she time rewinds powers, time. Yeah. Or you can let the storm destroy Arcadia Bay and stay with Chloe. Yeah. And I think both of those endings actually make sense. They do. I think this yeah. is something that's especially difficult to do to have a both a, having a surprising and honest ending, especially when you have to do multiple surprising but honest endings. Yes. Yeah. Um because so what surpri- what is surprising about this is that you as the player, you you have to choose one. It's not going to choose for you. You like you you surprise yourself, I think no matter which option you choose. Right. Um, and you get to sort of see the fallout of your choice. But like you said, it's honest because both make sense. Like if you choose to save Chloe, your experience has probably been, well, you've been very close with Chloe and it makes sense to you that, well, why would I ever give up the person I love most in this world? But at the same time, like you're holding Chloe in one hand, but Arcadia Bay and all the people within it on the other hand. Yeah. A big part of this game is its setting and its other characters. Exactly. And the game is very much trying to sell you on falling in love with both. Yeah. And having to choose between those two at the end is what is really painful. And I think yeah. that is a big part about the theme of responsibility. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So you can see how that all comes right. And that responsibility and having responsibility that comes with growing up, that comes with the friendships that you've made and what you're willing to sacrifice, it all just comes together at the end in a, in a heartbreaking way, no matter what option you choose. Right. And I think that's why it's such an interesting an interesting thing, because you get to choose your experience of how of how that, that ending plays out. And I think that's it's really interesting and, and wonderfully, wonderfully done. Whoever the writers were, I can't remember their names. Um, very I think there names. were a couple. They're the, they're the um, Don't Nod is in Paris. So. Yes, Don't Nod. They, yeah, they did a wonderful job. Right. 
All right. right. Well, on that note, that finishes off. That finishes us off with the case study. So we'll see everyone yeah. next time. Thanks for listening. All right, quick sign off this week, but uh, we couldn't help this because we love, love, love stories and games. <laughs> we and we do. wanted to talk about, besides God of War, Life is Strange and... Ori in the Blind Forest. There it is. <laughs> what other kind of games, we, what kind of narratives we love and stories we love and other games we played. So you want to start us off? Sure. So Gris is a beautiful game to this check out. This was the one out. you uh, recommended a few episodes ago. Yes. Right? Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful like pastel world. If you love artistic games with gorgeous soundtracks, this is definitely for you. Um, you can also check out Transistor. Also beautiful. Also an amazing soundtrack. More of a... Um, more of a narrative in terms of having some more characters and some more uh, combat going on. Gris is more of a uh, calming experience. An experiential game. <laughs> yes, very much so. Uh, if you're looking for something a little bit more fun, um, Borderlands 2 has yeah. a spectacular narrative. And it's only five bucks on Steam right exactly. now if you're listening to this. Yeah. Then, like, a, Seriously, the check it out. Borderlands I would, 3 is coming out soon, so yes. check that out. So oh, man. Exciting. For Borderlands 2, we just, I would... We just oh. dated the crap out of this episode. I know. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, specifically for Borderlands 2, I would check out the DLC Tiny Tina's Assault on Dragon Keep. They do some amazing things uh, concerning, unsurprisingly, themes of grief and dealing with grief. Um, I know, from Borderlands 2, who would have thought? But seriously, check it out. You will not be disappointed. Uh, I'm going to give a few shout-outs to uh, the Soulsborne. So Dark Souls mm. 1, 2, 3, Bloodborne, <laughs> Demon Souls. Uh-huh. I'm putting an asterisk on Sekiro right now because I've only just started and it's a very dense game and has a very different storytelling technique mm. than the other uh, Soulsborne games, but those all have... Really, really insane stories, and I think if you'll play through it, you're gonna sit. You may, if you play through it once and just say, like, "I don't get it," where's the story? <laughs> just go watch all of the epic name bro or oh, body yeah. video or any of the other lore videos online. You're gonna yeah, get your mind they're blown. Nuts. That is Seriously. like the best part. Yeah, would... don't even play the game. If those aren't your kind of games, just look up what the narrative it is because it's nuts. <laughs> uh, quick shout out to the Mass Effect trilogy. I know, I know, I know the ending of the third game is going to get a lot of you up in arms, but I I found those games hugely epic and yeah. hugely engaging and very character driven and just very well done through and through. Especially if you're into dating relationships. <laughs> Do it. Garrus, I see you. I love you. <laughs> uh, infamous and Infamous 2. Uh, Psychonauts, very good, very fun game, mm-hmm. very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spec up the line, not so funny, very dark, because, yeah. you know, we're going out these days. Mm-hmm. And uh, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. I know, I'm a broken record. <laughs> oh, and if anyone hasn't checked out To the Moon, beautiful game. Bring a box of tissues. It broke me in many ways. Uh, and for, for a final kind of wonderful experience, check out Gone Home. It takes about four or five-ish hours to get through. You just, you're walking through a home experiencing the narrative of where your sister has gone. It's beautiful. Um, with Thank you for listening to this episode of Panic Mode. You can reach us on social media at panicmode.net, all spelled out, or on our website, panicmode.net. We would love to hear any comments, questions, or feedback you have about today's episode, and we'll be back next time where we'll take a look at operant conditioning in video games. We'll see you then.